verses 1 through 13 this morning of Luke chapter number 16. I'll give you a second to get your Bibles there. And if you don't have a Bible this morning, it's going to be up here on the screen as well. But we find ourselves in verse number 1 of Luke chapter number 16. And the Bible says this. He also said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward or a manager. And an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship or your management, for you can no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, what shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I am ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So we called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? So he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. Now, this is probably one of the most confusing parts of this parable in verse number eight, which we will get into later this morning. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon. That word mammon is simply money. That when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? Verse number 13 is a very familiar verse. Now, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. For just a few moments this morning, we're going to talk about this subject, a bad manager with a big message. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the opportunity to preach, Lord, and the opportunity to come and lift our voices up in worship and lift you up in word, Lord. I pray that you would be with the hearts and ears and minds of the listeners, Lord. And as we approach Luke chapter number 16, I pray that you'd be with us, help us, lead us, and guide us, Lord. And we'll be careful to give you all the glory and honor for all that happens. And in your name we pray, amen. Pastor Sam's a few months ago gave me the two sermons that I'll be preaching in the summer, and after I looked at them, I'm thinking, what? I had to deal with self-righteousness one week, and then money the next week. Man, that's a blessing right there for a preacher. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> so this morning, that's what we're going to talk about. A bad manager with a big message. In chapter number 15 of Luke, Jesus is speaking to an audience of tax collectors. He's speaking to sinners as the Pharisees and the scribes are listening in, speaking parables about the lost sheep and the lost coin and then finally the lost sons. 
As we make our way into chapter number 16, Christ's audience changes. Who Christ is speaking to changes. Look at verse number one. The opening part says, he also said to his, what church? Oh man, that, all two and a half of you. Let's try that again. He also said to his disciples. Jesus' audience transitions from tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees and scribes to the disciples, to the people that are inside the church. He's been speaking to people who are outside of the church in chapter number But as he transitions to chapter number 16, he addresses the believer, the disciples, the followers of Jesus. And in order to fully understand this parable, we need to understand what a parable really is. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's a fictitious story, but they are given for the sole purpose to help us understand God's word just a little bit better and understand God's purpose just a little bit better. I'm from Arkansas, y'all, and we only go up to about a five IQ number, okay? That's about where we're at. And so I'm grateful for parables because it really helps me understand the Bible just a little bit more. Jesus breaks it down to where we can understand it just a little bit better. And so that's what a parable is. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Now this first parable in Luke 16, let's be honest, is one of the most confusing stories in all the Bible. It seems to say that Jesus is condoning deceitfulness. It seems to say that Jesus is praising an unjust steward or manager. But hopefully this morning as we journey through these verses, we can make some practical applications to our lives that from this parable that Jesus has given. So number one this morning, let's notice the desperation of the steward in verses one through seven. He also said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship for you can no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, what shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig, I am ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their house. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to them first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? So he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So the first thing that we're introduced in chapter number 16 is this steward situation. We see in verses one through three, his master must have been a very extremely wealthy individual. He hired a manager or a steward to oversee all of his things, whether it was his home, whether it was his land, his finances, animals, all of it. This is the manager's job to manage the rich man or the master's abundance. But we find that someone comes to the master and accuses this steward of not handling his things properly. He was squandering his master's possessions. This word squandering is the same word that we find used in Luke chapter number 15. Coming off the heels of the prodigal son, this is the prodigal manager. So this manager calls 
his, the master calls his manager into his office and pulls a Donald Trump. He says, you're fired. You're fired. Finalize your books, clean out your desk, you're gone, my brother. So rightfully so, this manager begins to freak out. He's about to lose his job. His master is taking away his job, and the Bible says that this manager is too lazy to dig, and he's too prideful and ashamed to beg. Not only is this man losing his job, but in the Bible times, where you worked most of the time is where you lived. So being fired, this man's losing his home, he's losing a way of life, he's losing his groceries, he's losing his honor, he's losing his respect. This steward is losing everything. And his whole life is built upon this career of managing his master's things. So he's losing his job, his home, an ability to get groceries, honor, and respect. This manager is losing everything because he was bad at his job. The second thing we're introduced to is this steward's solution in verses 4 through 7. After this manager gets fired, he thinks to himself, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? So a light bulb moment happens for this steward. You can almost hear it in the verse. Ding. <clears throat> Ding. There we go. That sounds a little bit better. Sorry, it's the second round of puberty. Please forgive me, all right? This light bulb moment goes off for this steward. And he says, all right, I know what I'm going to do. Let me find this in verse number four. I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of this stewardship, they may receive me into their house. I'm going to call all of my master's debtors together. I'm going to bring them all in, and I'm going to interview them and ask them, how much do you owe my master? So he calls them all in. He gathers them all together and begins to ask this question. The first one we find is in verse number six. This man, it's these two examples that Jesus gives, and he said, a hundred measures of oil. Now, a hundred measures of oil was between 900 and 1,000 gallons of oil, worth about three years' wages, and around 150 olive trees had to be cut down in order for this to happen. Now let's see what this manager does. Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. He gives them a 50% discount. Come on now. I love it when I get half off of whatever. So I'm sure this debtor is rejoicing and excited that he's getting a 50% discount. The second example Jesus gives is in verse number 7. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? So he said, a hundred measures of wheat. Now, a hundred measures of wheat was around a thousand bushels of wheat, around 100 acres to produce this much wheat. And listen to this, eight to ten years of labor. So he said to him, take your bill and write 80, 20% off. Man, a discount's a discount. You see, in order to grasp what's going on here in the story, we need to understand how things in the Bible worked. We can't read in our culture of today into the Bible. We have to understand the culture of the Bible times. Without his master's permission, discounting so many things secured this manager's future 
because of the honor society model in Bible times. Now this honor society was the more respect that you had with the community, the more benefits that you had in that specific community. Your legacy was built off the honor system. And if you didn't give honor to where honor is due, you hurt not only your legacy, but you hurt your family's legacy also. So this manager manipulates these people that owes his master so that when he's put out on the street, all of these people owe him one. All of these people owe him something. He gave a 50% discount to one, a 20% discount to another. There, these are just two examples of all the people who owed his master. So in this story, it could have been a lot more than just those two people. He backs this community into a corner of them having no choice but to take care of him when he is put out of his management. Now, there are two things that I notice in this manager's attitude. The first thing is this, that his career and money defined who he was. His career and the money that he made defined who he was. When he lost his job, he lost himself. When he lost his job, he lost everything. His identity was wrapped up in his career and the success of that career. Can't we get the same way? So wrapped up in our careers and making advancements and making more money that we lose ourselves in the process. When I was, I believe I was 13 or 14, I, my church in Arkansas where I grew up at hosted a youth conference and at that particular youth conference, one of the preachers got up and said, I need some young man to, to carry this sword into battle with me and go out and preach the gospel and never be ashamed of Jesus and go out and testify about Jesus. And honestly, I felt convicted of the Lord and I felt like I was getting called to preach at that specific youth conference. So I went up. I grabbed that sword and said, I'll go. I'll go out, I'll go and fight the battle. And from age 14 all the way through high school, I really, really wanted to be a youth pastor. Man, I loved my youth pastor. I loved him so much, I married his niece. And that's the only reason why I married her. So I could get close to my youth pastor. I'm just joking. But now he's my uncle-in-law, I guess you could say. But I loved him. He was my high school teacher. He was my basketball coach. He was my youth pastor. And I'm thinking to myself, man, what an exciting career. I could potentially be a basketball coach. They, won't, they don't want me teaching English in uh, high school because I don't even know how to speak that English stuff. But I could be a youth pastor. I could do that. And so from age 14 all the way to 17 and 18, all through high school, I really, really, really wanted to be a youth pastor. And you know, when I graduated high school, guess what I went to college to be? A youth pastor. I went to a college in Arkansas from the, from the church that I grew up in. They had a college. I went to that college. I studied for four years to get my bachelor's in pastoral theology to learn how to be a youth pastor. Well, when I graduated college in 2018, Guess what happened? I went and I became a youth pastor. Me and Brianna moved from Arkansas to across the country to Arizona, and there I spent three years as a youth pastor. Man, y'all should have seen me that first year. 
I didn't know what I was doing. I, I couldn't, I, I just didn't know what was happening, you know. When parents come and ask you a question, I'm like, I don't know. I was just there like two years ago. I don't know the answer to that. So I'm, I'm focusing on growing myself and ministering to all these young kids. And when we first moved out there, we had three kids in our youth group. Three. And by the time it wound up moving, we were averaging about 25 or 30. So we had this massive group of young people that me and Brianna literally poured our lives into and loved on and prayed for and sought out and wanted them to know about the love and grace of Jesus. But I spent 10 years of my life pursuing and becoming a youth pastor. Then I felt the Lord kind of shifting my heart and changing some things. Which brought Brianne and I out here to Jacksonville, Florida. And for 10 years, youth pastor, youth pastor, youth pastor, youth pastor, youth pastor, youth pastor. And when I move out here, guess what? Director at Chick-fil-A. Youth pastor, youth pastor, youth pastor. Now, it was Chick-fil-A. I spent so much of my life forming an identity to a specific career instead of finding my identity in the one who provides all things. So when that career wasn't taken away from me, I willingly gave it up. But it was removed from what I was doing I lost myself. When we first moved out here, I, I would tell Brianna, I even told Pastor Sam's this, that I, f I felt like pride and my identity was just being stripped away from me. I had built up my whole life to become one thing and then I'm not it. I'm not it anymore. And I felt that rock bottom. And it's because I formed that identity with something that can be given but that also can be taken away. And this manager did the same exact thing. He formed his identity to managing what his master had. And then when he lost it, he lost everything. The second thing I noticed in this manager is that he was willing to do anything for his own success. He gave away a 50% discount. He gave away a 20% discount, even if his master didn't approve it. He would manipulate this honor society so that he was taken care of when he is put out. Using people and taking advantage of them, sacrificing honor and respect and relationships in the process. Which brings up a very valid and convicting question to me. Are we sacrificing things in the pursuit of money and success? Are we sacrificing things in pursuit of money and success? I told y'all when we first moved out here, I went to Chick-fil-A. I went from being a youth pastor to Chick-fil-A. It's because they baptize those nuggets in fresh oil, okay? That's what happens. And so that's why I went. I actually grew up working at Chick-fil-A. I started when I was 14 all the way through college until I became a youth pastor. And then when I got out here, it was just easy to transition because of my resume. Super easy. I was the marketing director. I went to the director position in Ponte Vedra. That's where I worked. And when I worked there, man, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to lie, my owner-operator took care of me. But I realized that I, I came out here 
to do a pastoral internship. And I was working 50 to 60 hours a week, waking up at 4 o'clock in the morning, getting home around 4 or 5 in the evening. Um, it came with its perks. I got free food. I mean, come on now. <laughs> you can't beat that. But because I was waking up so early and because I was getting back so late, I felt like I didn't have a life. All of my energy and all of my time was being poured into this job that honestly is not going to be my end result of a career. And because I was focusing on my job so much and growing the opportunity at my job so much, I sacrificed time, I sacrificed energy, I sacrificed my relationship with my wife, I sacrificed my relationship with my family, with friends, because I was too worried about bringing in an income and bringing in something that, su that could support us at the sacrifice of other people. So I started to realize in this last February, honestly, that I needed to do something because I'm worn out all the time, I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I don't have any time for Brianna, I don't have any time for ministry things, I need to do something. So I went and found another job. But it's because I identified what that job was sacrificing and I stood up and I said that that job it's not worth the sacrifice of my family. And that job is not worth the sacrifice of my friends and of the ministry that God has provided me with. This steward was willing to sacrifice those things just so that he is taken care of later. But my friends, I, I hope and pray that our careers and the advancement of them, I hope that you're not sacrificing your spouse in the process. And I hope that you're not sacrificing your family in the process. And I hope that you're not sacrificing your God in the process. This steward, this, this is the earthly side of the parable that Jesus is giving. But as we jump into verses 8 through 13, it begins to take form as a heavenly meaning as the parable goes. So number two this morning, let's see the message of the master in verses 8 through 13. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly for the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The first part of these verses, we see the master's recommendation in verses 8 and 9 which is a very confusing part of this parable. It's a very confusing part of this story. The master commends this manager. What? The master commends this unjust steward. But can I tell you, it's not because of this manager's manipulation. It's not because of this manager's deceit. 
It's not because of this manager's poor management. And can we take a small commercial break and say this, that God will never be okay with sin. God will never be okay with deceit. God will never be okay with lies. God's not okay with that. So the Bible's not contradicting itself right here. This is what the master was commending this manager for. The Bible says it, for his shrewdness, his shrewdness. Now shrewdness is this, it's, it's acting wise or with common sense. It's wisely taking advantage of an opportunity. The master is not commending him for his deceit, he's commending him for wisely taking advantage of an opportunity, which we'll get into here in just a second. Jesus is commending this manager for using his present situation to provide for his inevitable future. He's using a present situation to provide for his inevitable future. It was wise to use his present position to secure a certain future. Are you with me? You following along? Jesus also takes us a bit further and says the sons of this world, meaning the unsaved, the unchurched, are more wise in their generation than the sons of light. So the world, the unsaved, are more wise in their generation than the saved or the child of God. Here is that parable contrast again. The world is more intentional about setting themselves up for a future that they know is coming than the children of God. They are laying up treasures in their 401ks. They're laying up treasures in their Roth, uh, their Roth IRAs. They're laying up treasures in their HSAs and in their home equities and in their storage units and in their garages. They're laying up all these treasures so that one day they'll be able to retire. So that one day when they do retire, they'll have these things to take advantage of. And the Bible says it's saying this, and yet the Christian is more worried about laying up the same types of treasures here on earth than investing in kingdom work. Matthew 6, 19 and 20 helps us realize this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So what's happening here is this contrast of Jesus is saying that the world is a lot better at investing in a future that they know is coming than the children of God. Here's that contrast though, is that the children of God know that a certain future is coming, but it's gonna look a lot different than what the world thinks is coming. So what, I'm stuck, there we go. So what's happening here is Jesus is pointing out this contrast and saying, they're a lot better than you are, church. They don't know what's coming, but you do, church. They're more wise, they're more shrewd than you are. Verse number nine, Jesus is even telling us to make friends with unrighteous mammon. Jesus is telling us to use money to make friends. Wow, that's different. 
This is a different type of story. It's a very confusing story. It, it seems to not make any sense, but it's not how you think. Christ is telling us that we should use our money and our things to help further the gospel of Jesus. So that one day when that money fails, because it will, the people who we were able to reach with material possessions will be able to welcome us home in glory. This is the, this word fail in verse number nine. Let's read this real quick. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. This word fail is the same word used over in Luke chapter 12, verses 33 and 34. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags, which do not grow old, a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The second part of this is we see the results of bad management in verses 10 through 12. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? Jesus is simply telling us that we cannot be expected to be when we can't even manage what we have now. We can't be blessed in these certain ways because we're not managing correctly what we have now. We say, well, that's not fair. Christ has never given me the opportunity to manage big time. Well, let's think about it. I don't think the bank would either. If you got a credit score of negative 1,000, they're not gonna grant you anything. And it's the same way here. If we're not properly managing what God has blessed us with, why would God bless us with more? We are managers. We are stewards of everything that we own. And Jesus is the master that's given it to us and is expecting us to manage what he's blessed us with properly. If we cannot manage properly the things that he has given us, how can we manage anything more? Thirdly, we see the choice every disciple needs to make in verse number 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and money. It's impossible. The Bible gives us a choice right here. You can either love God or you can love money. But the Bible clearly tells us that the love of money is the root of all evil. We can find verse after verse after verse of people who are in pursuit of money, what they're willing to sacrifice, who they are going to take advantage of. The love of money is the root of all evil. And when people love money, they are willing to do anything to get more. But when people love God, they are willing to sacrifice anything for the greater good. Listen, church, securing an earthly future is not a bad thing. Investing for your retirement is not a bad thing. 
I don't want y'all to hear, oh man, Pastor Sam, Stephen got up there and preached and he said, it's bad, money's bad, don't invest it, give it all to the church. No, it's good to steward our lives in such a way so that one day we are able to take a break and retire. That is a good thing, church. That's a good thing. I know so many pastors and so many people who work till they're 90 because they haven't stewarded their finances correctly. I'm sure none of us want to be working when we're 90 years old. Well, you have to set yourself up so you don't. It's not a bad thing to do that. But if we are more worried about our retirement account than our eternal account, then we are serving the wrong master. I grew up in Arkansas, actually Jacksonville, Arkansas is where I grew up. <clears throat> Don't worry, it's nothing like here. It's a town of 20,000 people and a Taco Bell. That's about it. But every year we would have a missions conference and we did faith there and our church was a decent size. We would give about two to $300,000 each year to missions. And during these missions conferences, we, it would be from Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I mean, it was an action-packed week. We had so many missionaries come in. I'm talking 10 to 15 missionaries that would be on our campus all week long. And we would get preached on missions the whole entire week. And then on Sunday is Commitment Sunday. This is where we fill out our commitment letter of what we're going to give to missions for the whole year. And we drop it at the altar like we're giving it to God. And then we'll count it all up. And then we'll have our victory service that night and rejoice what the church promised to give to missions. But every Sunday morning of that missions conference, um, there was a piano player there at the church named Brother A. And he would sing a certain song every missions conference. Maybe you've heard this song, it's, it's by Ray Boltz, called, Thank You for Giving to the Lord. And I'm going to read a few of these verses to you, and I want you to think to yourself, this is what giving is all about. Verse number one, I dreamed I went to heaven, and you were there with me. We walked upon the streets of gold beside the crystal sea. We heard the angels singing, then someone called your name. You turned and saw this young man, and he was smiling as he came. And he said, friend, you may not know me now. And then he said, but wait. You used to teach my Sunday school when I was only eight. And every week you would say a prayer before the class would start. And one day when you said that prayer, I asked Jesus in my heart. Verse number two. Then another man stood before you and said, remember the time a missionary came to your church and his pictures made you cry. You didn't have much money, but you gave it anyway. Jesus took that gift you gave, and that's why I'm here today. Verse number three, one by one they came as far as the eye could see. Each life somehow touched by your generosity. Little things that you had done, sacrifices made, unnoticed on earth, but in heaven now proclaimed. The bridge says this, and I know in heaven that you're not supposed to cry, but I am almost sure 
there were tears in your eyes. As Jesus took your hand and you stood before the Lord and he said, my child, look around for great is your reward. The chorus says this, thank you for giving to the Lord. I am a life that was changed. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am so glad that you gave. Listen, church, eternal giving is worth it. Investing in people is worth it. I know that in our day and age, money might be scarce and we might be really worried about it right now. Our investments might be down. Mine is. Gas is up. (laughs) I have a sedan and it costs me over 70 bucks to fill it up. That's expensive, y'all. Compared to what it used to be, I used to be able to fill up for about 35 bucks. About doubled. Food's more expensive. Everything right now is expensive. But the Bible is timeless. And this steward in this parable secured his future even in a desperate situation. And my friends, the commandments and expectations of God do not change under the weight of certain circumstances. But neither do his promises. And my friends, it is more worth it to give to God than it is to anything else. And my friends, it's more worth it to invest in a kingdom that we know is coming than it is to invest in anything else. God still wants us to steward our finances correctly, but God also wants us to see the bigger picture when it comes to eternity as well. And one dollar can change a life. We serve a big God. (laughs) And we are just little people. Some of us with little wallets and small accounts. But I promise you this, church, that God can do a lot more with your little than you ever could if you had a lot. Three questions I want to ask before we get out of here today, and this is kind of this is what I want us our minds to be to be thinking on during the invitation. First question is this: What are we sacrificing in pursuit of money? What are we sacrificing in pursuit of money? My friends, we can get so worried about having a hefty savings account or bank account that we can forget that we have a family that we need to take care of and love on. <laughs> I grew up in a household. My, my dad made pretty good money, and my mom did as well. And so I got <laughs> whatever I wanted pretty much. I remember one time mom made meatloaf for dinner. and I, I don't really like meatloaf. It just the sound of it sounds disgusting. <laughs> um, a loaf of meat. Have this for dinner, son. (laughs) Mom, I don't want meatloaf. I want to go to Red Lobster. Okay, let's go. That's how my life was. It was great. You know, I had a dad bod as a five-year-old. That's not a good thing, (laughs) okay? (laughs) 
but when we got married, Brianna, Brianna's family didn't come from a lot. They always worked in ministry. They didn't have a lot of money. And so our, when we got together, I'm thinking things, 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 fancy restaurants, fancy clothing, fancy cars, a lot of money, 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 money. But Brianna's content with a picnic on the beach where I want to go to Texas Day, Brazil. <laughs> and I had to find this contrast and understand that Investing in my family doesn't have to be fancy. And loving on my family doesn't have to be a show. It can be simple things that I take time to show them I love them. But if I'm working all the time, I don't have that time to show them. So what are we sacrificing in the pursuit of money? Secondly, do we worry about our walk with God as much as our financial situation? <laughs> God's funny sometimes. It seems like every time I preach a message, God wants to really show me what I'm preaching in the week of. <laughs> I go to, at our church in Arizona one year for my birthday, they got me all new tires for my vehicle. And uh, <clears throat> it was like over $1,000. And it's a birthday gift for me because I really needed new tires. I mean, it was amazing. They went to Discount Tire. And every time you go to Discount Tire, you get a free inspection. You get a free tire rotation. I'm thinking, man, me and Brianna are about to go to Michigan this next week. And I'm like, why well, don't you go get these inspected and checked out? So I'm walking into Discount Tire with my head out high. I'm like, free inspection, free rotation. This is going to be great. And then the manager comes. Sir, you need new tires. Oh, really? And you have a bent rim. Oh, are you kidding me? $1,800 later, <laughs> what am I going to do, God? Oh. I'm so worried about it, like sick to my stomach, a pit in my stomach. That's so much money. But man, what if we felt that way about our walk with God? Living from paycheck to paycheck, man, I can't wait to get paid this Friday. Man, I can't, I know what I'm going to do with the money. It has to go to this bill. It has to go to this bill. I'm so worried about it. What if we woke up like that every day, worried about walking with Jesus? Are we more worried about our financial situation than our walk with God? And lastly, how are we managing what God has blessed us with? You know, God can bless us with money. God can bless us with possessions. God can bless us with time, with talent. And I hate to bust some of y'all's bubble, but like I said last week, anything good about us is just Jesus. There's nothing else. And Everything you have is a gift from God. Everything that you have. Your car, your money, your home, your family, all of it. And God has entrusted you with those things. God has given them to you so that you can manage them for the furtherance of the gospel. Well, how do I manage a car for the furtherance of the gospel? You could bring someone to church. How do I manage money for the furtherance of the gospel? You can give, even in a desperate situation. How do I manage talent for the furtherance of the gospel? Well, Sarah Hurst utilized her talents this last week to put on an awesome VBS. There is always a way to use what God has blessed you with to further the gospel. So what are we doing about it? Every head bowed, every eye closed. I'm going to ask the worship team to go ahead and make their way up here. 
money. What an awkward conversation sometimes. We see this bad manager with a big message, and his message is this. Invest into eternity. And we can do that with everything that we have that God has blessed us with. And the question today is this. What are we doing about it? God has blessed us with so much. And, but we can worry and not trust in him. But church, I promise you, he has your back. And he loves you. But he does have an expectation for what he has given you. And that expectation is to give back to him. So church, I pray that as we leave here this morning, that we understand that everything that we're blessed with ought to come full circle and be given back to God some way. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. I hope and pray during the invitation that we'll deal with you, that we'll sing out and worship to you, or we'll sit in our seats, Lord, and, and deal with what you laid on our hearts. And we'll give you all the glory for it all. And in your name we pray, amen. You